Welcome to the weekly show about art, politics, and pop culture from a phenomenally female perspective. I'm Eliane. I'm Shante. I'm Sarah. I'm Lauren Ashley. I'm Katie. And this is Unapologetically She. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of Unapologetically She. We are so excited to have you guys with us. You're going to love our guest interview today. It's Miss Denise Oliver-Velez. I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. So now let's introduce our drink of the week. It is the Raspberry Rosé. Two parts rosé, two parts raspberry seltzer, and throw some fresh raspberries in that glass. If you do not have your drink right now, press pause, grab your drink so you can drink with us as we begin Unapologetically She. Cheers, ladies. Cheers. 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 All right, so everybody, welcome to our first segment of our Shot and Chaser. And what we're going to do every week is bring up a topic. Uh, none of us knows what the other is going to say, what we're going to choose. Uh, so our shot is going to be the topic, and our chaser is going to be everybody's reaction to that panelist's topic. So it'll be kind of impromptu, and it'll be really fun. I'm excited. Okay. And I think our first... Our first panelist today is Lauren Ashley. Yes. Can you guys see my screen? I can. Yes. Okay. So my shot and chaser for this week is, I mean, now we're in, we're officially in March, but throughout, throughout February, a lot of black um, artists, illustrators specifically, I think they were doing the hashtag 28 days of black hairstyles. So, and I still, cause I've heard her name pronounced two ways, Vashti or Vashti or three ways Vashti is another way but um Harrison she's I think she was the one who like originally put it together so on Twitter and on IG there were tons of black illustrators posting these beautiful just these awesome drawings of black hairstyles and celebrating the diversity of black hair throughout the month of February so you can see hers flashing through we've got finger waves teeny weeny afros sister locks I wish they had left the bonnet out because I'm not a fan, but you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> that's not a hairstyle. That's go to bed and make sure that you don't wake up looking crazy. That's but, like, your hair <laughs> but like, as I'm scrolling down, like you can see, so on, you can see like, there was like a whole list, wash and go puffs, bantu knots, box braids. So every single day, these illustrators would take on a new one. And here we have another illustrator, um, Liesl Adams, Bald is beautiful. And it's just, it was so nice seeing different, different artists like takes on different types of black hair. And it's something that made me smile every day. But yeah, I wanted to focus on, I want to focus on the arts when it's my turn for shots and chasers. So yeah. It's wonderful. My God, I love it. I, do I love too. Awesome. it. It reminds me of a book I actually read with my students called I Am Enough. And it's all about this 
little girl and her acceptance of her hair and just loving her hair and loving the way that she looks. Oh my gosh, these, I hope everyone, uh, if you have a chance, go look this hashtag up on Twitter because the illustrations are absolutely amazing. Aren't they? So I know you guys, if you're listening, you obviously can't see my screen, but there's a one artist, I'm not going to try and pronounce her name. A-C-A-M-Y is her first name. And she did a video where she was just kind of showing every single one that every single style that she tackled. And it's so cute. And it's just nice. And it's, I don't know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. So you're all little kids too. I love it. Isn't it adorable? It just just makes me so happy. So again, the hashtag is 28 days of black hairstyles. And it was a drawing challenge for the month of February, but you can look up the hashtag at any point now and still see them. It was it it was Twitter and then also Instagram, but I was mostly seeing it on Twitter. I think it's a, it's, it's great as a black woman myself and who has been natural for almost ten years. I mean, I learned how. Hey, to Team Natural. It. Yes, <laughs> and so I appreciated my my natural hair. I appreciated, you know, I wear my braids a lot because. You know, doing my hair is a, a, a process, but I had when working in the office, because I work in a nonprofit sector, but I work in like that kind of corporate traditional nonprofit sector. That's what it is. So people don't appreciate your hair, but I learned how to appreciate it over time. So no, they don't. That's why the Crown Act is a thing, but I didn't want to get too political. Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> we're aware that black hair is inherently political because the way that our hair naturally comes out of our head is viewed as you know just wrong Mm -hmm. oh y'all y'all have beautiful hair i love it thank you (laughs) so miss shante what do you have for us this week well this week mine is not based on the arts even though i appreciate the arts as Lauren Ashley does. But I want to talk about this uh, relaxing the mask mandate. So as we're still in the midst of this global pandemic, it will mark two years that the national emergency that was in the White House uh, made this pandemic a national emergency. He declared it after being told to get test kits and whatnot. So you got blue state governors, all governors, and even purple states relaxing the mask mandates. And I know in the city, we're um, starting tomorrow, it will be put in effect. And so my thing is, this false optimism is crazy as hell, even though hospitalizations are going down, but there's people that are still dying from this pandemic. Like as of, you know, Friday, when I read the um, COVID numbers, there's like almost a million people dead from this virus alone here in the United States. I mean, there's almost 6 million people dead worldwide. There's damn near 500 million cases around the world the united states alone have like damn near 80 million cases and still we're acting like this thing is over and these award shows are having people packed in the freaking you know stadiums and packed in all these um theaters and i'm just like with no mask on i'm like um we're still in the midst of a pandemic i don't care if you had a vaccine you need to you know mask up yeah (laughs) precautions Yeah, it's like, like, okay, so like in New York City, they're lifting the mandates as of tomorrow. And where I'm from in my county, they lifted it Wednesday when um, Hochul's 
thing went into effect. <clears throat> and like my daughter, you know, she's seven, she's vaccinated. She's had both shots. My husband and I are both vaccinated and boosted, you know, but it's like, they lifted that mask mandate. And I mean, not only is it unsafe for the reasons that you mentioned, Shantae, it's like, my daughter was just on her winter break. So all these kids were out of school for a week doing God knows what, God knows where, you know, we don't know if they're going to be sick. And then all of a sudden that first week, we're not even the first full week back in school, they're lifting that mask mandate. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's not, it's not safe. Yeah. You know, in New York city, I feel like they, they at least made an attempt to take that into, a, you know, to take account of the fact that they were just on break and might've been traveling because you know, the week before we returned, there was an article out saying that New York City was going to review its mandate, right, based on the numbers after the first week coming back from vacation. See, they should, they Which should, to me, like, you know, this is spreading and, and then you still want to take the mask mandate away. Right. You know, so it was kind of interesting to me. I, I told my students, um, you know, as of Monday, the mask mandate is gone, meaning it's optional, like it's not required anymore. Every single kid that was in my room at the time said, I'm still going to wear mine. Yeah, so I feel true. hopeful, you know, that my <laughs> at least my kids want to still keep wearing it and they're not going to feel funny if I'm going to wear it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Problem with the numbers is we have these home kits, which are amazing that we have those, but how many people are even reporting their own sickness and illness? So that's, yeah, yeah. I don't trust people. Anymore. I being out this weekend was like mildly alarming to me because you can see the people who are just waiting, just waiting. I mean, here in Buffalo, like, so it's already gone. So people are walking around city hall with their masks. And I'm just like, yeah. I don't trust you. I know that a good chunk of you were never vaccinated at all. Yep. And yeah, I've gotten my booster, but I still don't want to, uh, mm -mm, don't breathe on me. Yeah, don't exactly. On me. Exactly. And how many of these people, yeah, people are getting tested, but most of them are home tests now. So who's sick and who's not? Exactly. That's why I will continue to wear mine with the 8.4 million. I will continue. So that is that. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And Katie, what do you got? My, <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. Um, the justice Dems and the working family, they pissed me off this. Well, they pissed me off every day. <laughs> but <laughs> this week, especially with their dang rebuttal and this whole trying to create their own party within the Democratic Party. And it's just, I'm sick of it, to be honest. Like, I'm just so sick of all of them. I even was talking to my parents who live in a very, very blue part of it, the world. and they're like, this is dumb. Why? Why? This is destroying us. So yeah, it's been pissing me off all week. <laughs> they get on my, 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 and I'm going to say, they get on my motherfucking nerves. There you go. <laughs> we have workers party, working parties in, in New York City, in the state. And New York City is different from other places. But the difference is the working party people in New York actually do shit. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like, versus other places, they don't do shit. And with those quote-unquote progressives, because they're not real progressives, because mm. I should get Our shit problem. done. And I'm quote unquote progressives, it, it's the simple fact is, you know, I mean, why y'all call yourself progressives when y'all don't even pass no bills? Ooh, <laughs> they don't pass bills. bills. 
They don't write right 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 them. Right <laughs> they don't just snag. Go get your snacks. Get on the Capitol steps. Like you don't got a goddamn job in the fucking building. Yep. I mean, we and we got to remember, you know, the Justice Dems, the uh, Democratic Socialists of America, these parties were literally created to destroy the Democratic Party from within. They're not well, the, the, cur- the current form of the DSA, definitely. It, well, I mean, honestly, if they you had a mission that, statement, it's in their mission statement. It's been <laughs> in their mission statement for years. It's a fact. It's out there. You can see it. And people either refuse to, to listen or don't want to listen. But they're they're the, they're trying to Trojan horse this motherfucker. OK, they're trying to Trojan horse our party. They're yep. trying to do the same thing the Tea Party did to the Republican Party. There it is. Yeah. The black Democrats ain't standing for that shit. And I can tell you that right now because right. the Cloud Bones of the world, the Maxine um, Waters of the world, and the, um, the Laura Joyce, Underwood. Yep, and yeah. the Joyce Babies of the world ain't playing that shit. So there's Hell five, no. no. five whites that come from like the farms who was in these parties. They can try, but they can never take our party over that's Absolutely. right because you know what at the end of the day black women have to come to the rescue like every other fucking time yeah there we go I'll get a moment's peace mm-hmm. yep all right so then my my topic um i'm actually going to do a two-parter um i'm just going to do a quick update we had um during our dress rehearsal uh, my topic was the um transgender executive order that texas governor greg abbott did um there's been an update the aclu has sued the state of texas uh to take care of that after one of the people whose agency is in charge of investigating abuse for that their child is trans oh so that person was put on leave essentially to be investigated for abuse and so the aclu came in and they they've sued the state of texas so that's what wow yeah Yeah. so that's finally happened so that's good that's really good um but my my shot for this week is fucking joe mansion Ooh. Fucking Joe Manchin calling himself the audacity to call himself a fucking Democrat after he is the only Democrat, in quotes, to vote against cloture for reproductive rights for women Uh, so our rights can be codified into federal law. So he prevented it. The only Democrat to vote against it. So. We don't, I, I would, I, I just, you know, we don't necessarily want to vote him out of office because we need Democrats, but we need to vote more Democrats into office. So his vote is fucking obsolete. I agree. So when people say that the Senate don't matter, that is a prime motherfucking example. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That shit matters. So you can stay your motherfucking ass home and your motherfucking want to, and you don't want to motherfucking vote, but you will have Joe Manchin's who want to re- retain white supremacy. There it is. My question is, white people who say the Senate doesn't matter, who the fuck are you? And why are you that dumb? Did you know exactly. exactly. What were you taught? You know, and, you know, and the thing is, you know, it's and he's also showing his racism with this. Yeah. It's going to be predominantly black women and other women of color that are impacted by this. 
yes. that are not going to be able to get the How health care that, that they need. How they about white women? Gonna be affected. Poor ass white women in my states and yes. Mississippi exactly. and Alabama. It's not, like, not white women in those states that are going to have okay. to find other ways to do it. And it's that, not easy in this state. Exactly, no, Katie. Already. Exactly, yep. Katie. That's the point, Katie. White women Look. get abortions. Yep. Right. Yes. And eventually, you know, I, I think it really comes down to the fact that, yes, the white supremacy is always their their utmost, you know, goal. Mm-hmm. But underneath it all, the sexism is there, too, where they're not going to let their own women either. Like they want to control women. unless they have the money, then they will send their women somewhere, somewhere else. else. Oh, oh, it's it about making sure that there are enough white babies being born. Yeah. Uh, Jane, I think Jane Elliott did, did a really good breakdown about that. That woman is always on point. I swear to God. I know. I love her. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I I agree with you, Sarah. We need to vote more Democrats in so that one vote doesn't hold so much sway over everything else. It's like putting the wrench in the machine, you know? He's he's killing Biden's agenda and he's enjoying the fucking power. He loves that. He and his little party city wig wearing friend. Mm -hmm. He likes to parade around for attention. Mm -hmm. Exactly mm-hmm. that. Exactly that. Yep. Eliane, what do you have, hon? Okay. So <laughs> this week, my shot and chaser topic is surprisingly unpolitical. Um, I do love the pop culture angle of our show. So I'm going to talk to you about some trash reality TV because I love to watch that shit. Um, so <laughs> recently, a lot of people on social media have been talking about the show Love is Blind. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but the premise of the show is that it, it's a dating show and people go on dates, but they don't see each other. They talk to each other through a wall so they can hear each other, but they cannot see each other. And the whole premise is, is love blind, you know? And at the end of the show, what happens is once one person proposes to another, that's when they actually get to see each other's faces, okay? And it's it's wildly interesting. Like, I, I suggest you go watch it because it is salacious. But at the same time, you know, it, it makes me kind of think, do you think it's possible? to fall in love with somebody who you've never seen. No, no, no. You know, I, I, I kind of had like a, well, not never seen obviously, but I did meet my love through social media and we didn't meet face to face before I knew like, I love this person. Yeah, we saw each other. We definitely yeah. saw each other ahead of time, but you know, you know, not in person, not in the same room. And, you know, this show is already on its second season and two of the couples from the first season got married and they're still married. I thought this was that a brand new show. For them. I don't even understand. Like, you know, I, I need that spark. I need that spark. You know, I got to so see somebody face to face or see a picture or something. I got to be able to feel a spark. Katie That's the most important thing. That spark. What the fuck is this shit? 
Katie <laughs> <laughs> and I was like looking at each other like, what the fuck is this? Katie like, huh? <laughs> no, to like never have seen the person. Because like, Elian, like you, which, which y'all have, that's not that. No, that's, that's no, long not- distance. And yeah. long distance has existed since like the beginning of time. Right. Like you, yeah. that's my, my there are no surprises when you, when you saw him for the first time, IRL, like, well, inter- I mean, well look, when I say no surprises, I mean, you weren't like, who you? Like, that's <laughs> like you know who they look like. But, you know, it was real. <laughs> it was the voice. What is that, that voice? Who was that voice? That voice. Had I met Myron, right? through some, they call these pods, right? The pods where you go on your dates. You're in one room, they're in the other. It's kind of the same room, but it's separated by a wall. So you can hear each other, you can't see each other, right? Um, I don't know, I might've heard that voice and have been like, yeah, <laughs> well, I, 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 I totally believe, a, I totally believe. I totally believe, I totally believe that, but. Yeah, I can't. But if that voice was coming out of four foot tall, so, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. You know what? The, 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 the voice matches what you wanted from the yeah. voice. No, that yeah. did happen on the show where people felt like they had fallen in love and wanted to marry that person. And then they saw them and were not physically attracted. And then it was a very, important. it was a very awkward, you know, transition. And so I guess it comes down to really like physical attraction. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I do think so that it's a really very integral part of being in a relationship, especially Absolutely. something that you want to have long-term. You don't want to spend the rest of your life with somebody who doesn't get your pussy wet. I'm just saying. You want to be intimate with somebody who repulses you. <laughs> and on that, on that note, <laughs> we're going to wrap up Shotgun for the week. <laughs> Thank you. So this segment here, y'all, my name is Shantae, by the way, aka Shantizi on Twitter and Instagram. And so this section of red receipts is basically me getting all the receipts that the Republicans and all of the knuckleheads, chaos agents on Twitter and other social media platforms are spewing about the Biden administration, any other misinformation, you know, any other stupid shit that, you know, people have said. And so I'm here to bring the receipts as mm-hmm. they say, or documentation for, you know, the sophisticated folks. <laughs> so we know we had the State of the Union address. It was on Tuesday, March 1st, and y'all can watch it on YouTube. The president delivered a hour and five minute speech, basically outlining all the accomplishments and what they plan to do within the incoming year into the midterms and after the midterms. And so, of course, you have the Grant Insurrectionist Party, also known as the GOP or the GIP, which I call them, <laughs> hashtag GIP, you know, said about the president. But I also would like to highlight the shade room because, you know, they've been saying some bullshit. So this is like a little bit before the State of the Union address. So they say Biden administration reportedly finalizing 30 million to give out crack pipes to drug addicts, which we all know that's not true because according to the White House website around here, they released um, a statement about the harm reduction and the opioid, opioid um, overdose crisis. And I believe they're giving 30 million to uh, harm reduction so people don't have to, you know, shoot up in their arms and shit like that, right? You can check it out on the White House website. But also, I would like to focus on the Grand Insurrectionist Party. Mm. But Kim Reynolds, 
gave the um the Republican, well, the grant insurrectionist rebuttal. And she said Democrats in DC are spending trillions in spending inflation, soaring Republican leaders around the country are balancing budgets and cutting taxes. Yesterday I signed legislation that eliminates Iowa's tax on retirement income and set our attack foul tax rate at 3.9%. And then she said, I called out Biden's failures. I wasn't afraid to say parents matter. In response, the left just has just lost it. Help me fight back against the, the smear campaign today. And she's basically, because she's running for re-election, so that's why she's doing it. Well, and then, um, yeah, so that right there in a nutshell. So pretty much, they're all, oh yeah, and, and oh, I forgot about Tucker Carlson's um, stuff. <laughs> so Tucker Carlson was like, Joe Biden delivered the country's first ever state of Ukraine address last night. So shut the fuck up. Let's just sum this up. The what Republican a piece of shit. It's the party of freaking insurrection now, white domestic terrorists harboring them. They're the party of fiscal hawks cutting social funding for social programs. They're the party of going to people's countries and try to overtake their fucking government. It's documented in history. And the Republican party within the last, let's say two and one and a half decades have shown their ass, especially when we elected President Obama back in 2008, how they did not want to work with the Obama administration, how they did not want to pass the Affordable Health Care Act, how to cut the Affordable Health Care Act after getting money from this pres from then President Barack Obama, how you know they also pretty much just tried to be obstructionist all on its own. How they tried to obstruct his presidency, nothing once but twice. And fast forward to Joseph Robinette Biden, you know they tried to um, Junior, they tried to obstruct his plan, especially with the two Democrats, quote unquote Democrats you know, voting with the Republicans. This shows, this shows how we got to keep fighting back. And if it wasn't for platforms like Unapologetically She, <laughs> Elian, Sarah, Lauren, Ashley, Katie, and myself, if it wasn't for us giving you the facts and the rest of the Kamala Harris supporters adjacent folks, you guys will be lost in the sauce. Mm -hmm. Do not believe the misinformation do the research, primary research for you folks out there that don't know. So let, 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 let's dumb it down for you. Do the research, type in, you see the first website, you go there. Don't go on social media, get your news. Because mm -mm. it's not facts. Stop listening to the motherfucking shade room. Because they don't have degrees in political science. Or if they have degrees in business, they don't know shit. They don't research. Stop motherfucking listening to them. It's if all about the clicks. It's it? not about the facts. Exactly. Say it again, Sarah. It's all about the clicks, not the facts. <laughs> and what you said, Elion? I said, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Google's free. You know. Google is it, free. I, you know, it's just fucking shameful Shantae how in 2022 when we all have the world's database of information 
literally in our hands on our smartphone, people are too fucking lazy to just type a few words in and read some things. Grab a cocktail. And I also blame it on the fact that we don't have fucking civics in our schools anymore. Mm -hmm. And, And you know, there's people out there left in the trenches, so to speak, a few of us out there still trying to teach our students that, but we have to sneak it in because there's no other time left in the freaking day. And in our, you know, our flow of the day, you know, they've even taken out things like social studies and we, we sneak it in. We have to, we have to intertwine it with our reading and writing units, which I do, but that's extra work for people. And you know what, when you make people do extra work for less, for not extra money, nine times out of 10, they're not going to fucking do it. Yep. As one good historian saying, we all follow her, read some damn books. Yep. <laughs> some damn books. Exactly. Exactly. What about you, Katie? How you feeling? You know, that's... <laughs> So I work in literacy and this is one of the biggest things is focusing on how to re-educate our kids because we need to refocus. And one of the things we do here in Kentucky, we actually have a big focus. Our reading association helps assist with, we just rewrote the social studies program here. And that was a big focus. We're getting civics and social studies and history back in and just the basic concept of just doing basic research it's like lost. Apparently it's just like went out the window sometime in the last 10 years. Like, oh, I can read this title of a post or something or article. And that's all I'm going to do. I was like, half the time that title doesn't have anything to do with what's being said. So yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's the same thing. Like it's the same thing with critical thinking. Like I'm, I'm Gen X. Okay. I am mid forties. I'm Gen X. I grew up toward the end of the cold war. So like, and I think I'm like the oldest one in our group. Right. So, which doesn't exactly make me feel great, but even then, like even being Gen X, there were no classes as a kid, even up through high school that focused on critical thinking skills. And we're seeing that we are reaping the consequences of that now with these adults, like with the shade room or whatever, where they're not focusing on facts and they're not able to determine what's true, what's not, and to break it down. I did not actually have any critical thinking classes until I was in college as part of my curriculum. And even then, I mean, I'm not going to brag. I mean, it was common sense to me. I got an easy A. And my teacher was like, I, you're the first student I've ever had that's passed it on the first time, <laughs> which is sad because I'm not that fucking smart. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not, I'm yeah. not a genius. Yeah. You know, I'm like average, I'm an average white woman, you know, but it's like, it's so fucking far gone out of our society with people using critical thinking skills or just being able to determine what's fact and what's not. And that's why we need to read some damn books and listen. And that's all we have for read. Mm-hmm. And that's read receipts. Welcome back, everyone, to Unapologetically She. And for our inaugural episode, we have the absolute most amazing guest interview. 
Um, she is Miss Denise Oliver Velez, who is, as we all know, a literal living legend, um, professor of anthropology and women's studies at SUNY New Paltz, community organizer, member of the Black Panther Party, member of the Young Lords Party. Um, she's an activist, radio show host, and so on and so on. Thank you, Ms. Denise, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's wonderful that this is inaugurating in Women's History Month and International Women's Day. So that's quite an honor. The honor is truly all ours. <laughs> um, so, you know, starting off, we would love to know how you first got involved in the Black Panthers and Young Lords parties. Um, well, it's Young Lords Party first, Black Panther Party after. <laughs> and um, it's kind of difficult to say how I got involved because it didn't really exist in New York. And it's kind of organic what happened. It wasn't like making a decision to join something. Um, a number of people who had been active in a community organization in East Harlem, in El Barrio, where it was East Harlem Prep, it was an organization called the Real Great Society, which I was a member of, and I was teaching at a prep school for high school dropouts in not just dropouts, but kickouts, because there were kids who were considered to be unteachable, unreachable, which was bullshit, you know, but um, so we had a special program for them and a number of people at RGS um, were doing other kinds of things, housing and some people came, showed up to recruit students to be at this experimental college on Long Island. Um, under the State University of New York system, but it was supposed to be a complete and total experiment, uh, no grades, all kinds of stuff. And they showed up at, they were carefully selecting students. They had selected students from SDS, leftist students who had been kicked out of uh, Madison, um, University of Madison in Wisconsin. They had students from Chicago. They recruited two black students out of jail. I mean, so they decided they wanted Puerto Ricans <laughs> and they showed up in East Harlem. And my partner at the time and I were both at the school and they recruited the two of us as a couple. And I never said a word. They assumed we had never been to college. I had already been to four schools, shut down different schools, been an activist, you know, and my mother was like tearing her hair out. Are you ever going to graduate? You keep every school you go to, you shut down. And so they recruited us and they never bothered to ask me if I was Puerto Rican. And I called my mother and I said, they want me to go to this school. They're going to pay for the whole thing. They're going to pay for the books. They're going to give us a stipend every month. I said, but I think they think I'm Puerto Rican. My mother said, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say a word, you know. So Roberto and I 
were recruited. We went out there to help plan the school. Um, so we were in on the planning stages of the school and we immediately pointed out to the new administration some experiment you've got. You've got exactly out of 95 students, 16 were students of color. And that included somebody from Ethiopia, somebody from Thailand that they were bringing in, somebody from Venezuela, you know. And we started protesting before the school even got on the ground. And by the second year, we had recruited um, some new students, uh, Paulie Guzman from Bronx Science High School, who became Pablo Yoruba Guzman. And, um, and we started inviting students to come to the campus from other CUNY schools. And Felipe Luciano came out. Um, he was in the last poets at that time, Juan Gonzalez who is now the co-host of Democracy Now, came out to the campus and uh, Pablo and a brother named Muntu had gone into the city to the Panther office and they came back to campus with a copy of the Black Panther paper. And in it, there was an article about this organization in Chicago called the Young Lords, part of Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. And the brothers, they had this raggedy car <laughs> and they decided they were gonna drive to Chicago to meet the head of the Young Lords, Chacha Jimenez. And us sisters said, we're not getting in that car. <laughs> we're not cramming <laughs> in that car with you. That car may not even make it to Chicago. <laughs> so it was a group of guys that went out to, to um, to visit Chacha and spend some time with Chacha and with the Panthers and with the Young Patriots, which was the, the white part of the Rainbow Coalition. They were Appalachian whites. And they came back to the campus and said, we're young lords now. Chacha had waved a wand and made the group on our end, the young lords of New York. And so the only decision that some of us had to make from the campus was, um, would we join full-time, which would mean dropping out of school or be sort of continue to be associated and supportive and whatever. And of course I had no issue with dropping out of school. That's what I did for, my, for most of my life. So it was like, oh yeah, okay. And Robert and I both um, moved back into the city and that's how it happened. So it wasn't, I guess it's not like joining something. Um, it was ultimately just making a decision to, to do it full time. Because I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't understand today was that being a member of whether it was the Lords or the Panthers or some of the other groups that were part of the Rainbow Coalition, it was not like something that you went to a meeting once a week, you know, got together and had a rally or whatever. You left everything behind and this became a complete and total commitment. You did not have a job. You quit your job if you had a job. 
we lived collectively in what we call pads in communal uh, apartments. We ate together as a group because that was the only way that we were going to eat um, because we had no salaries coming in. And we raised money to support the organization by selling the newspaper that we ended up um, producing and, and selling on the streets. And we already had an example because that was how the Black Panther Party was financing itself by selling the Black Panther. And um, so we, we decided to put out a paper, Balante. And one of the first things I did was work on the paper. And then every day you, you had 100 papers and you went and you stood on the corner. And sometimes you were on the corner of 125th Street with the Panthers standing right there with you. We're hawking the paper. And across the street would be somebody from the Nation of Islam selling Muhammad Speaks, you know. And, and that was essentially how we sustained um, the organization. The one bill that we did not have to pay was a phone bill because the FBI was so busy wanting to listen to everything we had to say that I never, I was in charge of the finances for a period of time. I never had to pay a phone bill because they never cut it off. Because <laughs> wow. we would put, we would put uh, a radio right by the phone and play like Eddie Palmieri or The Temptations or whatever. So the feds have got all of this wonderful footage of salsa. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So that's that's essentially, I know that was long-winded, I'm sorry. But that's, <laughs> that's how uh, I became a young lord. Thank you for sharing, Miss Denise. Yeah. Hi, Miss Denise. So I have questions for you. It's so good to finally see your face. The <laughs> I see your face all the time on Twitter. I watch all of your wonderful I, I dissertations on the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Miss Denise. So in follow-up, I know back in the 80s, you know, I grew up in Harlem, born and raised in Harlem. And I know the time that I was born during, it was the crack epidemic. So there was a huge age HIV and AIDS crisis in the city in the 1980s. And of course there was limited resources at that time due to the knowledge and also of the virus and the ne negligence from the Reagan administration, which of course everybody know that. So <laughs> understand the severity of the situation. So can you explain your work and the involvement regarding the HIV and AIDS crisis and what measures did you take to address the concerns? Um, yeah, one of the... Okay, uh, at the start of the AIDS epidemic, I actually was living in, in and it was hit very, very, very hard. I lived on Third Street and I lived across the street from the men's shelter there. Uh, also, my neighborhood on the Lower East Side had a lot of uh, gay men and gay women, but at the time, the focus was on gay men. Um, there were also, uh, in Lower East Side, uh, you had a very large injection drug uh, community as well, just as you did in Harlem and in the South Bronx and in parts of Brooklyn. 
So all of these things were coming together and people were dying. Like, I, it's hard, maybe people can understand it based on COVID and the number of deaths we've had because it was like, you spent your life, it, you felt like going to funerals. Um, and what disturbed me at the time, um, I had two guys from the, the shelter used to come to my house and eat and hang out. And they were two gay men who were those barges that, that were sent. They clean, opened up the prisons in Cuba and kicked people out who were gay. And I attempted to get them help, which had opened up. And they were essentially turned away because they were, well, they were not white men. You know, I'm going to be real honest about it. And also because the presumption was um, that one of them was an intravenous drug user, you know. So I got really angry and I cursed these people out. <laughs> and I said, go burn your place down. If you don't start dealing with <coughs> people of color and how dare you make a decision, it doesn't make any difference how you got the virus. You know, you're here to deal with people and help them with the virus. And I also came into contact with a group of people who were trying to do harm reduction uh, for the IBD change. Um, so around that period of time, I also medical anthropologist, uh, Dr. Michelle Shedlin, who was taking a look at, and she was doing a study with street prostitutes. Nowadays, people use the term sex to do some of the ethnographic interviewing and I spent time out on the street, out on the host stroll, hanging out at midnight, you know, up on Park Avenue and whatever with women and young girls who were hopping in and out of cars and getting picked up by the police, getting abused, getting doing sex to get money for their crack, you know, and living in crack houses. I mean, it was a really, really oh, um, hard thing to deal with at the time because I know now that people talk about the glory of sex work and how wonderful and empowering and whatever it is. But from my perspective, out there on the street, there was nothing wonderful or empowering. It was about addiction and, and sex for money for drugs, period. And that was the first 
project that I worked on as an ethnographer. And, and Dr. She uh, Michelle was like, you need to go back to school. And I was like, no, I don't want to go back to school. She said, yeah, but you're a naturalist. I want you to go back to school. And I was like, I'm not going back to school. I want you to get your PhD. I was like, I don't want to go to school. And she called me up and she said, I have an interview with you for you at the Graduate Center. I said, I do not want to go to school. Yes, you're going to get a PhD in medical anthropology. And she's, I said, I can't afford it. She said, we'll pay for everything. I said, uh, I still can't afford it. She said, we'll give you a stipend. <laughs> so, so I was stuck with, and I, by this time, I'm, I don't know, I was in my 40s going back to school and um, going to CUNY Grad Center um, and spending a lot more time understanding the power of medical anthropology. And while I was there, I ended up getting hired to uh, uh, by one of the professors, Dr. Leith Mullings, who passed away two years ago, who was one of the founders of the Society for Black Anthropologists. She was the head of the, um, the AAA, the American Anthropological Association. And Leith had come up with a project to look at healthcare and HIV AIDS and infant mortality and that program was known as Harlem Birthright and so as a grad student with serving the one sent to do the work of interviewing people in crack crews and infiltrating myself into hanging out in buildings with 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 uh, crackers. And the interesting thing was that the study looked at people from all different classes in Harlem, different class backgrounds. And the end results were the same. It didn't make any difference whether you were upper middle class with money and you lived, you know, on Sugar Hill and had good health care, or you were working class and working, you know, in a city job, or you were out on the street smoking crack and whatever. The end results of infant mortality and preterm delivery um, were equalized across the board. And we were looking at that one of the factors, one of the variables in this is looking at the stress of racism and how it affects women and uh, maternal mortality. I went on from working on that Harlem Birthright Project to working on the first cross um, cr same ethnicity, but two different locations group. Uh, I worked on a long-term study called the Ariba Project, which was looking at HIV, AIDS, intravenous drug use in East Harlem and doing comparisons. And over the course, this was a, a long project. Um, and over the course of the study, all of the 
the 10 people I was following intensely in their lives in El Barrio, in East Harlem, were all alive at the end of the project. The people that were being followed in Puerto Rico by the end of the project were all dead. And it was, um, and some of those studies, you can actually look for them on Google Scholar. A lot of the papers that we produced out of that study are uh, accessible online. Um, but I just lost the visual. Okay, there we go. Um, but it was one of the things that really blew me away was looking at the differences between access to healthcare, access to treatment, um, and comparing it in the colony and in the quote unquote the ghetto, you know, um, but things were far, far better in New York by that time in the epidemic. Um, I remember going to Puerto Rico and being taken to a treatment facility for HIV positive folk. And I went in there and they were, it was filthy. There were dirty sheets on the beds, the patients. Um, weren't being fed properly or clothed properly. And I pulled this matron that was in there to the side and asked her about the treatment. And she said, well, they don't need treatment, they're healed. And I was like, excuse me? And they were like, "Allelu, allelu, allelu." You know, they've been healed. Jesus Cristo, gracias a Dios. And I was like, oh shit. You know, this is treatment, NPR. Um, yeah. And they were establishing a needle exchange in Puerto Rico. It was very different than the needle exchange here in the States. They gave people, you brought in syringes and they gave people one needle. Now, anybody knows anything about people who shoot dope or people who shoot in coke, they use it more than one damn needle in one day. You know, and um, whereas in New York at the syringe exchange that was located, they had but, um, these vans that pulled up in different parts of the city. You got as many as you wanted and you got cotton, you got uh, cookers, you got uh, access to acupuncture and all kinds of other things. And at the needle exchange in Puerto Rico, you got your one syringe. And then when you were leaving, the police would bust you, you know? So that, yeah, I see you, Eliana, I see you opening your mouth. Yeah. Um, uh, you should read some of this stuff from that study. But um, this was my introduction to the uh, governmental responses to the HIV AIDS crisis and one of the other things that was going on at that time was that in terms of treatment and uh, drug treatment, meaning AZT and the things they were coming up with, all of the studies were being done on men. If it wasn't for the Women's Caucus of ACT UP who started protesting, women were shoved off to the side. Um, they presented very differently in many cases with HIV, and um, but none of that was under study. So then they weren't uh, 
able to access some of the experimental treatments that were coming down to. Um, so with a group of uh, sisters that I know, we formed a group in on the Lower East Side called Women Healing Each Other. And for women with different kinds of issues, whether it was abuse issues or whatever, or HIV issues to be able to come to a safe space and to be able to come together and talk and, and get access to available kinds of things. And also just to uh, psychologically have support from a group of other women. And that was really, uh, uh, a major change at that time because you you have to understand that people were running around at that time and if you were HIV positive families were rejecting members of their family um, or if they they had a son or a daughter who was HIV at home they were running around behind them with a bottle of Clorox and wiping anything they touch giving them separate dishes um, it was a very, very ugly and bad time. And my, my brother-in-law, uh, who had a virus, ended up in Mount Sinai Hospital. And I could never, um, never forgotten him calling and saying he was too weak to get out of the hospital bed. And he said, they're not bringing me any food. They're leaving it on the floor outside the door and I can't get out of the bed. And I was so blessed that uh, in grad school, there was a Panamanian sister who was in grad school with me and she had gone on to become the Omsbud person for that hospital for Mount Sinai. And she lived way out on Long Island. And I called her up on the phone and I said, Marisa, let me tell you what's going on. And whatever, she got in her car, drove all the way from Long Island, went into the hospital, cursed out the head of nursing, called the head of the hospital um, and demanded that people go into that room and bring him food. But um I'm only saying that to illustrate what it was like at that time, you know, and we can kind of relate it to the pictures you've seen of what happens to healthcare workers when people have COVID and, and some people were afraid to deal with COVID patients and I understand it, but it's the kind of thing that as activists, we have to really pay attention to and call out and not be silent. And I call upon my memories of what went on during that period of time of HIV and then relate it to, to, to what's going on now. Sorry, I'm long-winded again. <laughs> it was fun because we have questions and so, because there's a lot of questions. And so what the third one is, what advice you will give for black women working in the field predominantly that's you know all white and man? And what was your experience as a black woman when you first started, I believe, in radio? When I first started what? In radio. Oh, okay. Um all right. I started in radio um as a member of the Young Lords, actually, WBAI FM in New York. Uh, offered us to do a Palante radio show. 
And so that was my first experience working with public radio. And we were very lucky. It was WBAI and, and some of the techie guys that were there were very helpful. And they taught us what to do in the studio. And then um, a number of years later, I had moved to D.C., and they were building supposedly a Pacifica radio station in D.C. And I heard about it. The problem was, was they were in Washington, D.C., which is Chocolate City with the vanilla suburbs. And they were planning on building a white news center for reporting from the Hill and to play classical music <laughs> in D.C., <laughs> So this, well, this racism in public broadcasting too, you know. And a group of activists out on the West Coast heard about this crap and they stormed the board meeting of Pacifica and said, y'all are crazy. You're going into a black city. You better hire somebody black and you better have a program format that, that relates to the black community. And they did, they, they were forced to hire a black station manager who I met right away, and it turns out this is really going to sound odd, but we're both born on the same day, the same year, right? We're both born August 1st, 1947. We were both carrying a little notebook with our poetry in it, the <laughs> same notebook, and we were wearing the same pair of socks. And he just took one look at me and said, you're my twin, you're hired. And I was hired to build the program format and because I had been at BAI years before I sort of had an idea but I said let's we're gonna have a jazz and jazz extension station along with public affairs and that's what we built and Pacifica gave us almost no money they set us up to fail so the people at the different stations around the country invited us to come and we made like a fake WPFW we made an audio tape of like what our programs were going to sound like. And they let us go on their air and we raised money on a radio station that did not exist. <laughs> and, um, and that's how we went on the air in DC. And we went on the air with Duke Ellington's Take the A Train because <laughs> the Duke was from DC. <laughs> and I got my experience um, not only de designing, I was the first Black woman to ever be a program director of a public radio station. Um, but I got experience also because I also did my own show called Sunbird. I promised people the sun would come up every day and played a lot of women's music um, because a lot of women in jazz kind of got shoved off to the side. So that was just sort of my commitment. I think I'm up next. Hi, Miss Denise. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. I, sorry. <laughs> We're all having like our little fangirl moments. This is weird. This is uh, awesome. <laughs> um, So I also have two questions for you. The first one would be, we have a lot of white people who are trying to do better. I wouldn't say be better allies because you can't declare that you are an ally. You have to prove it. So what piece of advice would you give white people and then I guess more specifically white women with that regard? I think um, it's real simple. It's learning to listen and listening to learn. You know, that's a nice little slogan. 
And we have done it. Um, you know, I, I blog at Daily Coast. Yep. <laughs> and, and Daily Coast is still predominantly white, though they have made an effort over the years to bring in more Black and more Latino writers, you know, and um, a subsection of Daily Coast that has been there was founded by David Reed years ago. It's called Black Coast. And I'm one of the editors for Black Coast. And what we have done over the years is there are white folks at Daily Coast who come regularly to support Black Coast. They sit in Black Coast. They defend us when we're attacked elsewhere. And in fact, I kind of laugh because a couple of people who've been in Black Coast for years now have been attacked as you black people. Mm. I'm like, I'm like, in fact, the first woman to write a piece, a major piece, um, at Daily Coast on white privilege got attacked for you black people this and she's a white <laughs> archaeologist from New Jersey, you know. And over the years, um, we have seen people stand up and be those allies. It's not that they're appointing themselves an ally. It is what they have literally done. Um, they listen. They don't put up with any of the bullshit. Mm. And they step up. Um, and, and several of them are some of my, I've known them now. I've been at Daily Coast since 2008. So I have known some of them for years and I uh, have met a number of them face to face and I trust them um, because of their actions, not because of what they type say, you know, but I've seen them stand up over and over again for uh, black folks who have come under attack. And you know that on social media, we are under attack constantly all the time and i think you've yeah. seen it with k-hive i think you've seen it with other sort of affiliated groups on twitter i'm not for the familiar. first accounts to get shut down mm -hmm. right the only accounts to get shut down right so i have seen who has stood up on you know twitter i i can't speak for some of the other social media mainly because it was enough that at my age I figured out Twitter okay <laughs> I can't, appreciate I it. <laughs> we, we're happy that you did we're happy that you did <laughs> so I, well, one, of, one of my god kids was the one who told me you need to go get on Twitter and I was like why <laughs> you know but it's the same god child who told me you need to blog and I was like yeah blog that sounds terrible so then what you're saying is that we owe this god child that yes <laughs> yes Thank yes. you. We owe a big thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for bringing us, Miss Denise. <laughs> yeah. So my second question is related to anthropology. I have an interesting, um, I guess I've had an interesting experience with it just while I was doing my MFA in studio art and then getting the master's in African studies, the relationship between anthropology and African studies and African art. That's something I think about like a lot. So my question for you is when it comes to anthropology studies, what's the, what do you feel is the most important thing that it's taught you or that you can take away from it or even your observations about anthropology? 
um, I didn't start out with an interest in, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a little kid. And I was told by a very blunt guidance counselor that you can forget about it. You know, you're a woman. Uh, on top of that, you're black. Um, and the reality is that the only woman right now in anthropology is in archaeology is Iris Love and her husband is a multimillionaire and could fund her. You'll never get any funding from the museum. So I shove that off to the side and um, shifted to art history, actually, as sort of sort of related. And it wasn't until years later, being exposed to um, medical anthropologists and what they were doing with the AIDS epidemic that I decided to go into anthropology. One, because it was closest to my own political belief system that you have to build bridges and find yourself comfortable with multiple cultures. And I think that I can say about my own practice um, that I have never exclusively said, I'm only going to deal in the black community. Mm -hmm. I have worked with Asian Americans, I have, you know, worked alongside of Native Americans. I have been part and parcel of um, Puerto Rican struggle for well over 50 years. And it has always, I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. My second language as a kid was Yiddish. Um, and I have always had an interest in uh, relating to people from differing backgrounds, not as just some kind of, you know, uh, fascination, but, but I always feel like people from other cultures have stuff to teach us. If we will just open our minds, we're taught so much to be divided. We, we, we have so many barriers that um, we allow to build up and that's our on us you know we have to do that kind of work um, but also that it's part of how uh, the system divides us and I am very very adamant against the opposed to and I see it everywhere systemic racism I think it's foundational in this country I do not put class before race no. at all. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I disagree with my Marxist uprising because my father, you know, was a doctrinaire Marxist for a long period of time. And uh, we agreed to disagree. Um, and I still disagree with people in DSA, CPUSA, you name it, whatever. Because for me, um, Racism is, is how one controls the world, you know, and, and building those hierarchies with white on top. Um, I, I got ready to jump in somebody's case just the other day because uh, they were talking about Puerto Rico. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of blame. It's a colony in the United States and it's oppressed by the United States and whatever. But look who's elected there. 
Look at the Puerto Rican elite. All of them are elite yeah. white people, you know, but nobody wants to talk about it. And I'm supposed to shut up because I'm not Puerto Rican. But guess what? I'm not shutting up. You know, that's an internal issue that needs to be addressed and dealt with. And in fact, I just say it's a question of somebody because I was trying to go online and go on Wikipedia and look and see in the Senate in Puerto Rico and in the assembly, the, leg the legislature, how many of them are Afro-Boricuas? I think there's Irma Lassen um, from uh, Victor Movement, the Victory Movement. And, you know, and that's a problem. And we have to learn to speak up about these things, just as we have to speak up against the Hoteps and the Eidos and the whatever oh, yeah. who are trying to divide us. Because um, I was furious when I realized that almost no news agencies cover anything going on in the Caribbean as a whole, except Caribbean cruise lines, you know, <laughs> tourist stuff. Um, most people don't know even, they don't know anything about Belize. They don't know anything about the Garifuna. They don't know anything about Trinidad and Tobago. They don't know anything about Montserrat. I mean, we don't get taught this stuff in school. I had Caribbean students who couldn't even fill in a map of the Caribbean. And so mm. um, for me, anthropology was a door for me to... Now, there are some negatives to anthropology too. Um, and anthropologists historically um, helped establish constructions of race and racism. You know, So that needs to be undone as well. But but it was a comfortable fit for me. And that's why I still consider myself to be a cultural anthropologist without a degree, because I walked out of grad school. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that, Ms. Denise. Um, you know, listening to you speak about your work in radio before um, got me thinking, you know, how do you think music and activism kind of intertwine to oh, oh. each other. Oh, listen, I wouldn't be alive without music. I think that I would probably slit my throat if it wasn't for having music to sustain me spiritually. And I don't want to get all religious and whatever else, but I truly believe that our mental health um, is key. You have to be sane enough to get up every day and face what we face on a regular basis. And one of the ways that we have always healed ourselves, uplifted ourselves, pushed ourselves forward, comforted ourselves, hugged us, has been in our music and on our instruments, you know, both voice and drum and saxophone, you name it. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I started doing the Black Music Sunday series uh, when COVID struck. And I was writing whatever I felt like writing on Sundays. But when COVID struck and it would particularly struck so hard in New York City, that was the first place where, I mean, they were showing pictures of bodies piled up, you know, they didn't have room in the morgues. I said, oops, you know, time to change what I'm doing and start writing about our music. 
and giving people a space. Um, and Daily Coast is a little different than a lot of blogs because um, in the comment section, we actually have conversations and people and I had people come in and post the music that they you know wanted to hear of the broader uh, understanding of black music, you know, not just R&B, but not just jazz, not just blues, but also black musics from Brazil or from Jamaica or folk musics or from the African continent. Um, so it was a very broad spectrum, but uh, at least I have that background thanks to having been at WPFW and I learned a lot from a lot of the other people who were on the air there who were experts in different genres of music. So um, I'm not a musician myself, but I listen to a lot of music and I'm also spiritually attuned to how music plays a role in my life. So um, that's how Black Music Sunday got started. And I always say to people, you know, you're feeling depressed, you know, yeah, go get mental health help, you know, get a therapist, get a shrink, go do whatever, but also find some music that will help you get through the day. Um, and I don't care, you know, um, what genre you pick. Um, I'm old, so you will not see me writing. No, I'm not writing about reggaeton and I'm not writing about rap and I'm not writing, you know, and because that's not what I grew up with and it's not what I listen to. But people are welcome to write about and talk about the music that, that rocks their boat or, you know, puts them into a, a, a good space. So um, it's so key that we have ways of peeling and taking uh, the pressure off because look at it, what we're going through right now. Not only do we have COVID and we got idiot people who want to kill all of us because they don't want to mask, they don't want to do this, they don't want to do whatever. Then we have the destruction wrought in this country because people didn't get out and vote enough and we ended up with the orange idiot. You know, now you got war going on too. Um, and you have a war on us, on voting and on uh, our own reproductive health rights, on the LBGTQ community, and particularly uh, the, the, the trans community. Um, so you have all of that. And how are you getting help for yourself? You know, and for me, it's find some music to help chill some of that out so that you can get up the next day and do what you got to do. Thank you, Ms. Denise. So, hi, I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm like so excited to speak with you and I'm so excited for this interview and I'm completely fanboying. I also fangirled really hard when you followed me back on Twitter. I think I almost peed myself, but... <laughs> Oh, Lord. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to know, um, you you frequently post, I think pretty much every day, you are posting updates post-Maria on Puerto Rico. And um, I just kind of want to know, what, what has driven your activism towards those issues facing Puerto Rico? Well, for 
Puerto Rico in particular, where after um, or during Maria hitting, um, and not just Puerto Rico, because also St. Thomas and the rest of the U.S. Virgin Islands too, because they had already been hit by Irma. Um, I was watching, you know, that orange fool uh, completely ignore what was happening and lie about what was happening. And in real time, I was hearing from people on the island who were like, no, you know, this whole neighborhood was wiped out. There are all these people who have died and whatever. And they're announcing 16 deaths, you know. And thankfully, Twitter, you know, people had the ability to take their, their smartphone and say, no, 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 look, look what's going on. And I was furious at how the media was not dealing with the truth of what was happening. And it was so clear um, that that was not what they were covering. And it was also clear that they had almost zero journalists who had a clue about Puerto Rico. Now, there was stuff on Twitter from PR in Spanish, but guess what? A majority of people on Twitter and other social media don't read Spanish, you know? So they're believing the, 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 the crap that's being put out and said about FEMA who fucked up um, and I can go down the list. And so I literally made um, a spiritual commitment. I made what is called a promesa that uh, I would every single day, no matter what, have something to say. Uh, even if it was one tweet about Puerto Rico, you know, I'm not a journalist, you know, from the Associated Press or this or that or the other. I'm one individual. And there is a sister who's in Vieques who gets up every day and posts, this is the number of days we still don't have a hospital in Vieques, you know. And she's obviously made her commitment to do that. And because um, I'm a Black American, somebody said to me, but you're a Black American. Why are you bothering about Puerto Rico every day and whatever? And I said, and why shouldn't I? Hmm? Yeah. Why not? You tell me why not, you know? Um, I'm cognizant of PR, have spent time there. My padrino, rest in peace, is, was from Santa Isabel. And uh, I have family. My parents took me to Puerto Rico uh, to visit friends there when I was a child. I have cousins who are Puerto Ricans. My husband is a Puerto Rican and I'm comfortable I taught Puerto Rican history and culture. So why not be a person to speak out so that uh, Black Americans, White Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans. I went to, to uh, members of AIM invited me out to, to teach years ago at the survival school at Pine Ridge Reservation. And what I was I lecturing to the kids about? Puerto Rican history and culture, because they didn't know anything about Puerto Rico. So if I have that oppor opportunity, I'm going to use it. And I will continue 
day in, I get up in the morning at four o'clock in the morning and I go and I look at the news and whatever. And then you will see, I'll have a tweet from Puerto Rico. I also go and look to see who's tweeting black history or women's history. And I'll tweet that too. And, um, and whatever else, you know, comes up. I'll put also whose birthday it is, if it's a jazz musician's birthday or whatever. And I have a, 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 a rhythm to what I do. If I wake up in the middle of the night because the dog woke me up at two o'clock in the morning, I go look on Twitter and see what's trending, you know. And I'm locked in my house. I'm also retired. I don't have to go to work. So I have time to be able to do this kind of stuff. Right. You know, and I look and see what some of y'all are tweeting. Right. And check stuff out. And now you've dragged me into spaces. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I just want to say before we keep going, I, I want to say thank you because those tweets, though, especially right after Maria happened, really sustained me. Um, my father, may he rest in peace, uh, lived in Puerto Rico at the time. And we didn't, we weren't able to contact him. We didn't know if he was alive or dead for three months, mm. three months. Um, and so those daily reminders that somebody else really cared about what was happening were very helpful to me. And I, and I'm sure they were very helpful to lots of other people who were, you know, and, you know, unfortunately I didn't, he didn't have a great, uh, ending to that story. You know, a diabetic who depends on insulin, who doesn't have electricity for three months. Right. Yeah. You know, so a few yeah. months later, he did pass. But, um, I'm you so know, it, was, it was hard to, you know, see the news kind of ignore that. And seeing that there was somebody out there that was really paying attention and cared was was incredibly helpful to me. So thank you. I'm sorry. Um, and that's the story so many people had. And people didn't understand why he kept yelling, they need electricity. And then, then fucking electrical companies lying that it, they fixed it. You know, people without electricity, without their insulin. And, and Puerto Rico has the highest percentage of diabetics in the United States, which is one of the medical history facts that, that a lot of people don't understand. Um, so... I'm really, really sorry about the loss of your father. Thank you, Ms. Denise. Thank you, Ms. Denise. I'm Katie. Um, just a couple Hi. questions I have for you. <laughs> um, one, just kind of a fun one here that we have. What show and or podcast would people be surprised that you're a fan of? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. They might be surprised that I'm a gamer. Okay. I'm part of a political left-wing, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic and transphobic guild on World of Warcraft. Oh, I love that. That's what's up. Sorry. That's just so good. Okay. And our guild our guild leader is an archaeologist. That's cute. That makes my nerd heart happy. And my other question is that you've touched on music and it's also being uh, 
Women's History Month and International Women's Day. What are some of your favorite uh, female musicians over the years? Oh, Lord, you want me to, to I will be here for hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll listen for hours. <laughs> no, but who immediately comes to mind? Uh, Nia Simone, uh, who's just phenomenal. Uh, a woman that most people probably don't know, Betty Carter, uh, also known as Betty Bebop, uh, because and she was an amazing scat singer, but also I admired her as a woman because she turned her back on the music industry and decided to distribute her own music at a time when people were beholden to, she's a tough cookie. I love Miss Betty Carter. So people should check her out. Odetta, um, I love uh, and was in DC at the time that Sweet Honey and the Rock formed. And they are my favorite sort of uh, acapella political activist um, uh, folk, whatever uh, music group. And and Miss Bernice Johnson Reagan, who uh, came out of the civil rights movement, and the SNCC singers. She's the I quote her all the time. I would say, if you're in a coalition and you're comfortable, it's not a broad enough coalition. And that's a quote from. Bernice Reagan. So, I mean, I could go on Mary McKeever, you know, uh, they're just wonderful, wonderful uh, women. I love women who back in the days of singing doo-wops, you know, I'm a Chantel's fan. So that's kind of what what rocks my boat. That's fabulous. I've added a few to my list to look up. <laughs> okay. All right, so I have two more questions. One pretty simple question. Um, what books are you currently reading and what are your recommendations? Oh, that's, that's kind of hard because I tend to read um, nine or 10 books at a time. I'm like dipping into one and then I go back over to another one. And recently, I've actually been doing um, a refresher course and going back and reading things that I probably haven't read in 15 or 20 or 30 years. So uh, because I realized that I take it for granted that I actually remember this stuff, but not. So I've been going back and working my way through uh, Caribbean literature that I haven't read in a long time, whether that's C.L.R. James, uh, Black Jacobin, whether it's, it's Eric Williams uh, on capitalism, Walter Rodney. Uh, uh, I have been doing, I've been reading, I, I'm rereading Fanon. Uh, I'm looking at a number of the, and I have a list of also women writers too, but right now I'm looking at sort of the uh, Amy Césaire, I'm looking at foundational uh, Caribbean intellectuals 
And because we give them short shrift here, but some of the most political writing and revolutionary writing historically comes out of the Caribbean. And I realized people would say to me, oh, and I mentioned Sila. What did he say? And I go, uh, and then I realized I hadn't read him in years, you know. So that's what, what I'm doing right now and what I'm reading right now. I also, you know, sometimes sit down and look at comic books um, and stuff. Or I have uh, two friends of my dad's were, um, had all these degrees in English literature and English history, and they couldn't make any money. And so they write like historical romance novels. And sometimes I relax and just read some of those, you know, and they're all accurate historically because these are brilliant women that have written them. They just couldn't make any money. So they did bodice rippers, you know, and everybody has to have some things that they relax. I'm also going to be rereading the first books. My mom used to read uh, Langston Hughes's Just Be Simple stories to me as a little kid. They were way beyond my pay grade as a kid, but I enjoyed them. And so I'm actually planning to, in the next couple of weeks, go back and uh, take myself back to being a little kid and listening to Langston Hughes, Just Be Simple. Sometimes you need it after had such heavy reading. You know? Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to say that every single one of those Caribbean writers that you mentioned, I was like, well, this just sounds like my last year of grad school. And now I want to go back to my notes. <laughs> oh. so I was like, yep, yep. I read that person. I read that person. I read that person. So you did in grad school. <laughs> that's great. Because yeah. so few grad schools have that as part of the syllabus. So that's wonderful. I'm um, very fortunate that I was recruited for African studies while doing art. Like, yeah. Okay. okay. And I just wanted to say thank okay. you for jogging my memory because I want to go back and look over some of my notes from, yeah, from school. Okay. <laughs> You're blessed because <laughs> I bring up those names and a lot of times she'll say to me, who are you talking about? And these are friends of mine with college degrees, you know, who are educated and, um, <laughs> But they they ignorant, you know. Mm. That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite mm -hmm. words on Twitter. You know, I recall people ignorant. Yes, uh, ma'am. Often. <laughs> All right. So my last question. Um, it's kind of four four out of five of us are all located in New York State on the panel. I'm in Kentucky. <laughs> and when in Kentucky. Oh, bless <laughs> um, you. <laughs> and so i mean it's it's kind of new york centric but i'm curious as to like further expansion with the question but um i work for the state and mm -hmm. i know that a lot of our lawmakers um they seek out community organizers, community leaders on feedback with legislation that they want to introduce with the state legislature. And I know that we have, we have one assemblyman, um, self-proclaimed Black Panther, Charles Barron. Um, I know that he's introduced some different legislation uh, regarding the renaming of Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. And he's, he's 
introduced several other measures um, bringing up anti anti racism whatnot. But we we also have other assembly members and state senators who were community organizers. Um, activists and everything before reaching office. Do you, are you involved with that process at all with helping them to see into the community there um, to draft legislation that you feel could help the state or specifically your community or have you even, have you had any contact with even other state legislatures from surrounding states uh, to um. try to draft? I have got involved. Uh, we recently relocated from living on a farm into in Sorgates uh, to living in the city of Kingston because my husband had a stroke, and so we had to to relocate for him to be able to uh, access getting up and down and, and whatever. And I was involved with my local. Democratic Party committee. In fact, I ended up for a long period of time, ended up integrating it. Because um, let me tell you something, I live upstate. So everybody there was white. And the first time I walked into the meeting, people, it was in the library, and people said, Oh, the library's upstairs. And I said, uh, No, I'm here for the Democratic Party meeting. You know, and they kind of looked at me like I had two heads. Um, so there was that. Um, I had I actively fought to get um, Antonio Delgado elected as our congressperson. I worked with my students the best I could at SUNY New Falls when I was still teaching there because not one student ever could tell me who their state assembly person was, their state senator was. In fact, most of the students couldn't even name the two senators from New York that go to Washington, Schumer and Gillibrand. Um, I have been very disturbed that, unfortunately, it seems to me, or at least what I saw over the years I taught at New Falls, that my freshman students, that civics seems to have disappeared from the curriculum in high schools and and middle schools um, in New York. So um, have I been involved with any of the other legislatures or whatever? No, Uh, it was enough to fight because we had a right-wing insane person representing us in Congress here for a period of time. Yes. And unfortunately, they sent um, who was running against him was Zephyr Teachout, and she was horrible. Nobody um, likes her. Nobody wants her. Stop. She keeps trying. No, but I'm saying she showed. No, but a friend of mine who's a union organizer organized a, a coffee gathering for her to come organized a group of women of color to come together and sit and talk with this woman. I was open to listening to her mm-hmm. and she sat there. One, she didn't eat the food and there was all this food that was prepared, you know, and you don't do that in people's houses. Second place, she sat there and the only thing out of her mouth was hedge fund, hedge fund, hedge fund, hedge fund. Instead of talking about bread and butter issues that people were concerned with, childcare, the kids' education, 
food, whatever, whatever. And I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And then she wanted to pass a basket, and I told her point blank, um, uh, I'm not giving you a penny because you don't know how to act. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I, I'm in the district James. right next to hers. Like, well, right next to yours. I'm in Tonko's district. Oh, okay. So, so you know I'm like, what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and like, I, I, I volunteered to canvas for Antonio Delgado when he went up against Fazo. And I couldn't vote for him because he's not, I'm not in his district, mm. but I drove over and I was canvassing for him and everything else. But I remember when Zephyr Teachout ran against Fazo that first time. It was, she, it was embarrassing. She was embarrassing. She was horrible. And they're going to run her for some more stuff. I just can't understand why, you know, I mean, it was bad enough that they had sex in the city lady who was running for <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, oh the name, my god uh nixon her yeah mm-hmm. and you know i mean i keep telling people i say it over and over again people say i don't understand you're a revolutionary and you voting for democrats i said yeah i am a pragmatic radical thank you very much and we need mm-hmm. to deal with on the one hand you can be out in the street power to the people fighting right on and that's good but you also need to walk your ass to the voting booth and not vote for some fringe lunacy either. You know, because people that did that and they had again, ma'am, got on the Supreme Court. You Amen. know, yeah. we're in deep shit thanks Amen. to people who decided to go off and do their own thing. Mm. You know, and that's that's <sighs> never mind because I'll start cussing. <laughs> No, but you're speaking truth, though, because it's just like people just like acting like, oh, you know, this doesn't affect me. Yes, it does affect you, man. It does affect you. Like what we got going on like right now, like in our our gubernatorial race, following up with Sarah, we we got, you know, and it's no shade to nobody. Like I'm staying neutral because my candidate is now running for re-election for her position because as the person that who thought who was in my mind will be the next person after Andrew Cuomo. But, you know. It's no disrespect to Kathy. I feel like Kathy should expand on her base. Like the recent Democratic convention, this is not her fault. I blame the state chair. This is the state chair's doing. Like you're not involved in the Latino community, Latino community in New York City in particular, and even in Buffalo where Lauren Ashley is, that's a big demographic. Latinos in New York are different from Latinos in like, you know, Florida. They Mm -hmm. vote. Democratically, especially mm-hmm. Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. That's true. Big swap. True. Like, That's true. I don't understand how you leave out that community. And uh, what I want Kathy to do, because I think it's in her heart, and I think she has it in her heart, even though she was not my preferred candidate, she was like the second person. I want her to reach out to that community. Go to the hood. Even if you got to go in your little rain jacket and your little hat, do what you got to do. Put your little <laughs> Buffalo ch- or Western New York charm on. So you can sway voters because that's the only way you can win. Like you're the only one that can actually win those voters. So you need to go out there. You don't have to take Brian with you. You can go by yourself. You capable of going by yourself. You are the governor. You are Governor Kathy Hochul or Catherine Hochul. I think Catherine is her name. Go out there. Do what you got to do. You know, sway those voters. Talk to the Puerto Ricans in the Bronx, East Harlem, actually in Central Harlem. And in places like, listen. Rochester, Buffalo, but Newburgh, yep. Newburgh. Yes. Where you know they what? had lead in the pipes. Yes. You know, 
And it has become, I call it uh, Bantu stands, because as they gentrify in New York City, it's pushing people to places like Newburgh, mm, which is yes. basically Latino at this point. Yes. Um, so there's a know. lot of Latinos in Rockland County, too. Yes. Yes. And they're they're kind of forgetting that that's there. Um, and that's a very, I want to say it's a purple area because it really can go either way, depending on who's showing up to vote. Um, yeah. there's a lot of communities like that in New York state. And I, and I suspect in a lot of other states, you know, in the country and people need to get more involved in their local government and local elections because they, they matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for everything, for school board, for whatever, for town council, it doesn't make any difference. Um, and I always talk to young people about, you know, to ask them, um, you know, who's representing you? You need to know who these people are and you can go and speak out and speak up um, and encourage them to, to do that because we're in some deep mess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's not going to get fixed uh, easily. And it's going to take time. Uh, as people who are politically engaged, we have a responsibility to, you know, kind of like each one teach one mm -hmm. and grab some, some other folks and get them involved. And I try to the best of my ability. I'm not going out of my house these days because of COVID. And I'm not killing myself because you got too many people up here who are anti-vax and anti-mask because I'm in and who have Trump crap mm -hmm. on their pickup trucks and Confederate flags. I see you shaking your head <laughs> and how are but, you going to have a Confederate flag in your truck when you're in the heart of the union? <laughs> I grew up in Oregon and I saw it. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, Oregon, why? You know, it's like, are this from the South? Facts <laughs> don't matter. I mean, our, <laughs> our county executive is Steve McLaughlin. You know, he's been indicted on crimes. He, he's a total Trumper. It's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know. And people think they hear New York and they're, oh, you're where all the liberals are. And I'm like, no, apparently these liberals are getting on my nerves in, in Manhattan. The ones that just came from mid sky, like, you know, saying streets wrong. I'm like, that's not how you say it. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's like <laughs> they go to they go to Houston Street. It's one. Two one and Frederick Douglass Boulevard, a hundred twenty first and eighth. Let's just let's just keep it real. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my uh, so um, I really, uh, I hope, I have to say to you that that I really, really appreciate and and love um, following folks on Twitter. It really. As much as there's craziness on Twitter, there's also a sense of love and community and support. And it really makes me feel good. And then I'll wake my husband up. Guess what they just said on Twitter? <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, really? You know? And uh, did too raw, too real do anything? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my God, What, Kenny? Kenny's pants. Did you see the video? Did y'all did y'all see the man enough for me? I can't even listen to. Um, it's stuck in my head now. It's new one. His newest one. Yes. Did you oh, see Mr. Denise? I have passed it on to, because most of the people my age are not on Twitter. My friends, they have like Facebook and they show pictures of their grandchildren to each other. And that's basically what they do on social media. So I'm the one who go, no, you got, I call them up on the phone. No, you got to check this out. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so y'all are, are my sheroes. <laughs> I have fun reading. What an you. honor. Thank you. Oh, it is. It is. That's going to carry me through the week. Whatever I can set off Women's History Month right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. incomparable, Miss Denise Oliver Velez. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. Mm-hmm. You know, we are so grateful. Um, and you know, before we close up, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything coming up that you want to share with our listeners? I would like um, those of you who are Democrats um, <laughs> to come and no, I mean I'm I'm serious about this. Uh, come and and come visit us at Black Coast, okay. and uh, and also come drop in and join me on on Sundays for the music. But um, we need more voices to come and support and sustain what we've been doing it's it's not easy you know having to we've got these commitments and every single day to do to do something and um a lot of people are kind of oh i don't know about joining a blog well you could come hang out we call it the front porch and yeah. we say the moonshine is buried under the porch. But <laughs> if you bring us some chocolate, we love you. Um, <laughs> so you have to make an account. You can put your own name or whatever, whatever, and, and come visit. We're on Tuesdays and Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay. And it's Chi Town Kev and Joe Marr and Justice Putnam and, and Dopper, David Reed, and myself are the editors. And we've been there for a long time. And we need a shot in the arm. We need some support. So um, that's my plug. Come join Black Coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Miss Dave. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. It's finally not frozen. I hope it's not (laughs) that full update. I'm waiting for my puppies to arrive. And so I put a picture up on Twitter. We're getting puppies because we lost our two elder dogs and our other dog is miserable and lonely. So she's got two two puppies on the way for her to be a mama too. So that's my exciting for you. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Bye. I don't know what's going on. Okay, there it is. Bye bye. Bye. Oh.
Welcome back, everyone. This is Eliane reporting to you from the Misinformation War Room, a segment about debunking all the bullshit that the media is trying to spew this week. So this is the State of the Union edition in which President Biden has really given us a masterclass in how to debunk misinformation. And he went point by point about things that people are lying on him about. So misinformation point number one, President Biden is weak on Russia. Well, the truth is he has been uh, enacting economic sanctions on many Russian oligarchs, seizing yachts, seizing luxury apartments, closing off American airspace to Russian flights, which is unheard of, putting personal sanctions on President Putin, which is almost unheard of, um, protecting 60 million barrels of oil reserves should we need to stop buying oil from that part of the world. Um, and, and so basically the idea that President Biden isn't doing anything on Russia is just complete fucking bullshit. Please like do yourselves a favor and read a fucking book, read an article, do something, help yourself, okay? Misinformation point number two, the economy under President Biden is doing poorly. <laughs> Truth is there are more jobs created in one year than ever in American history since this was, uh, started to be tracked, okay? Um, we're building new bridges, we're repairing existing bridges. He is really trying to make sure that we buy from American companies to work on that infrastructure, which is going to better our economy even more so than it already is doing. Um, he wants to make sure we use only American-made materials. Um, to repair these roads, bridges, et cetera, things that we're working on in the infrastructure bill. 350,000 manufacturing jobs last year alone were created. Um, and you know what? The data speaks for itself. Our economy is bouncing back amazingly. And you guys can go fuck yourselves if you think President Biden isn't doing great on the economy. Next point. Misinformation. President Biden isn't speaking out about health care. And we hear this right from <laughs> the leftist crowd as much as from the GOP crowd. Oh, they don't care. Universal health care. You know, in his speech, he was talking about cut, uh, cutting the cost of prescription drugs. Um, and he had a, a very special guest. Little Joshua was so adorable and it was his birthday. And, you know, he's a little boy living with diabetes, one in 10 Americans have diabetes, and yet the cost of insulin is through the fucking roof, and President Biden is trying to work with Congress, who's been giving him a pain in his ass, um, to try to remedy this. Misinformation point. President Biden isn't speaking about childcare, which is freaking false. He wants to cut the cost of childcare. He said that working class folks shouldn't have to pay more than 7% of their income, their total income on childcare. And he wants to put money into home long-term care and housing for families. The next misinformation that President Biden addressed in the State of the Union is that he's going to raise taxes. That's bullshit. Nobody under, uh, nobody making under $400,000 a year is going to see a penny raised on their fucking taxes. And I don't know about you ladies, but I don't know many people who make over $400,000 a year. So I think we're fucking good. Okay. Um, 
And he said a quote that I thought was really interesting. He said, I bet if we took a secret ballot in this room right now, we'd see that most of you guys think that the tax rate isn't fair. And it kind of left the room in a hush, right? Because everybody in there knows it's not fair that the $40 billion in profit that the top 40 of the top 500 companies made paid zero taxes on that $40 billion worth of profit. And he was also talking about working with other countries to impose a global minimum tax rate so that companies can't flee overseas in order to get those tax breaks. So again, that was bullshit. The next misinformation point, President Biden is going to defund the police. Well, he clearly debunked that by saying, um, we're not going to defund the police. We're going to fund the police. And he also tied in uh, universal background checks and the ability to sue gun manufacturers, which is one industry that has really been safeguarded from, you know, civil lawsuits. Um, and then again, the last thing that I want to focus on, which is this general idea that I keep hearing repeated throughout the media in social media is that President Biden isn't keeping his campaign promises or that he doesn't necessarily care about certain topics anymore because the campaign is over and he got elected. And I think that that's bullshit because he talked about all of these things that I'm now going to list in the State of the Union address. Um, he talked about the Paycheck Fairness Act and paid family leave. He talked about the PRO Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. He nominated Kintaji, Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson, a, a, a campaign promise that he made and fucking kept, okay? Um, he is talking still about reforming immigration, giving status to dreamers, protecting the rights of women. Um, he talked about the attack on Roe versus Wade and women's reproductive rights. Um, and he reiterated the fact that they want to um, revise and... Um, put out again the Violence Against Women Act, which he himself authored so many years ago. He talked about the Bipartisan Equality Act. He talked about the attacks on trans people, the American Rescue Plan, about children, the fact that they're being bullied, there's violence, trauma, social media is affecting all of this. He even talked about holding social media companies accountable for the damage that they're doing to our youth. And he talked about uh, giving veterans the benefits that they deserve. He talked about health care. He talked about uh, how cancer is, you know, the second most uh, leading cause of death in Americans. And he pledged to put more money into cancer research. And I could go on and on, but at some point the segment has to end. And so there you have it, ladies, a masterclass in debunking the misinformation by President Joe Robinette Biden Jr. Boom. And I'm That's our Uncle Polis. <laughs> Uncle President. Okay, welcome back to our last segment of Unapologetically She, our weekly bitch-ass and badass of the week. This is a segment where we have our listeners choose from one of the nominees um, to be the bitch ass of the week, you know, the person who's just done it so wrong 
that they need to be called out and the badass of the week who is the person who's done it so well that they need to be praised for it. So our bitch ass of the week nominees were Vladimir Putin, Senator Susan Collins, Representatives Marjorie Taylor and Lauren Boebert, and Representative Rashida Tlaib. And <clears throat> we actually had a tie. And not just a statistical tie, but they got the exact same amount of votes was Vladimir Putin and representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. What do you ladies think? Lauren Hobart. Hobart, I'm dead. Hobart. <laughs> I think they all they're deserve all it. Tied together. They deserve it. Yeah, they're yeah. all tied together. I mean, MTG and Boebert are like doing Putin's bidding. Yeah. So it's like it makes sense that there would be a total tie between the two of the two choices. I just like his handmaiden. Whoopi said it all last week, little girl, because Bobert is a little girl. Don't know what the fuck she's talking about, and she needs to shut the fuck up because it's your first rodeo. You and Miss Muscle Face Green. That's that's your first rodeo. Like y'all need to because y'all know. I wouldn't say the Constitution. Let's be like, I wouldn't even say little girl because that's like an insult to little girls because little girls learn and they grow and they become women. She ain't growing into nothing. She ain't growing into nothing. The woman is married to a sex offender. Regularly forget about that. And there it is. And (laughs) and lets her underage young children hold deadly weapons. I mean, she's a fucking idiot. Yeah. In every sense of the word, she's a fucking idiot. Yep. Absolutely. And completely disgraceful. She did not have any home training because everybody knows, even if you don't like your fucking teacher, person, whoever is presenting, you sit there and you fucking shut the fuck up. You don't stand up and boo while somebody is speaking about their child dying of fucking cancer. Okay. Why is a grandpa telling you to shut up? There's, I mean, seriously. And then you want to sit there and say that you like to respect the troops and everything else. And you're sitting there booing a man who lost his son, whose cancer was likely caused by the burn pits while he was serving in our fucking military. And I'm sorry, I'm married to a veteran. I worked for the Air Force for 13 fucking years as a civil servant. I take shit like what she did fucking personally. I have lost friends in battle. I have lost friends with shit like this. You know, it's like I served alongside these people and she's going to fucking disrespect them like that? No, fuck her. That's why they're the Grand Insurrectionist Party. They're formerly known as the GOP. They're not the party of Lincoln. They're not the party of Reagan or Eisenhower or, you know, the truths or globalists. No, they're the party of insurrection. That's why they're the Grand Insurrectionist Party. They're fucking they party, the party of insurrection. Yeah. They're fucking traitors. And I'm sorry. It's I, I I get so fucking heated about them because it's like they took an oath of office. And the same thing, I took the same exact oath of office that active active duty members did when they joined the military. And I don't care that I am no longer a civil servant. I don't care that I am no longer in federal service. I still live by that fucking oath. Mm-hmm. And what she did was just unfucking forgivable to me. Both of them. Both of them. And do you notice how we had such a guttural reaction 
to Mountain Troll Goblin and Hobart. Um, and we didn't even speak on Vladimir fucking Putin because we are so aggrieved by these two little it's because they're fucking Americans. They are sitting members of Congress. It's like, it's like, yes, we already know that Putin is a piece of shit. Yeah. And he's a fucking psychopath, you know, like, a, like a malignant psychopath because not everybody that's a psychopath acts the way that he does or people that are, that are diagnosed as sociopaths aren't like that. He is malignant and he is just evil. But it's like these two women, they are representatives of our government. They are sitting in the halls of our fucking Congress. And it's embarrassing, mm -hmm. disgusting, and infuriating. Oof. That's what I was going for. Well, to I, I, totally, I totally did not mean to take that over. No, I just, to I turn the page on that, let's end on a positive note <laughs> and award our badass of the week, the person or persons who, you know, just really showed true grit and, you know, they inspired us this week. So our nominees for badass of the week were President Joe Biden, President Zelensky, and the Ukrainian people. Vice President Harris and Speaker Pelosi, and uh, Judge Kintaji Brown Johnson, and with Jackson. 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 Oh. Okay, with overwhelming, overwhelming seventy-one percent of the vote, the badass of the week is. President Zelensky. He deserves it. Oh yeah. He deserves it. He deserves oh, yeah. it. I'm sorry, but how badass do you have to be to sit there and tell NATO and the EU and the president of the United States saying, no, I don't want you to get me out of here. I need ammunition. Yeah. Like, no, I send me shit so I can. He's a real I one. Yes. He's a real one. He's on yes. the ground. Like I say that a comedian turn into a diplomat, become a hero. Um, well, let's we, we got to make sure that we separate him from our comedians. He ah, does have a law degree, yeah. and his parents are like literal geniuses. I was like, well, damn. Yeah, did I you was, have any choice but to be great? Exactly. That's exactly what I was gonna say. It's like I see all these people trashing on him because he was comedian before. He was on Dancing with the Stars. It's like, do y'all realize how fucking smart he is? He went to law school. He did all this other shit. I mean, he is like he is brilliant. He just didn't wake up one day to be a president. Country? The fact that he's staying in this country and it's like, yes. my family now, we about to get killed. I mean, that, that's some real shit. And yes. people think, you know, people keep saying, and I, and, I, and I hate this, people keep saying World War Three. I want people to realize this ain't World War Three. This is Cold War Part Two. This man is, because if it was World well War, said. we would have allies. And China don't want this smoke with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I mean, it's like, it's like even China, it's like, no, they didn't vote to do anything, but they abstained their vote. Yeah. Which is them telling Putin, like, you on your own, we don't, we don't want to do this. Yeah. Yep. We're not doing this. Not We're not doing that. this. Putin was not expecting that. No. For sure. And, and he, he was not expecting, he was not expecting Zelensky to be such a fucking badass. No. And he what wasn't expecting Ukrainian people to be such fucking badasses. Yeah. Because, you know, they're sitting here saying, you know what? I hope, let, let me put some seeds in your pocket so that when you die on my soil, 
we get some flowers out of it at least. Like, yeah. Damn, that woman was just, oh my God. That woman yeah. is fucking goals. Someone <laughs> tweeted, someone up. tweeted that the Ukrainian national anthem basically is knuck if you buck. Like yeah. <laughs> 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 I wish I could remember who tweeted that, but I was like, yes, on point. Every single poll, I'm just like, yo, Ukrainians are gangster. Good for them. They are. It's like, they are, they don't, they don't give a fuck. They, they're just fucking brutal and they don't fucking care who knows it. Did y'all I mean, see the picture with the girl with the military style gun standing there like, what? With her family members? Miss like, Ukraine. Ukraine. Beauty pageant winner. I can't even. I mean, how about the guy who picked up the that like landmine with the cigarette the bridge with a cigarette in his mouth, <laughs> just calmly walking it across the street like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is some shit I've never seen. Before. And even and even like even the first lady of Ukraine in fucking military yeah, garb with guns, you're yeah. just like. I mean, could you just see the former guy and his fucking and his fucking wife? No, no way. They'd be hiding somewhere on a private jet off to some fucking private island. They they would not be about that life. Not and it's a bomb. And everybody keeps praising. Oh, this is not going to happen on you know his 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 watch. Well, the bomb honestly weakened NATO. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. bomb deliberately because Putin wanted him to. Because Putin told him to. And everybody saying, why are you calling him a bum? Because he's a bum at heart. That's why. A bum. He was a fucking bum in a in a squatter. Yeah. Yeah. Tried to bribe the Ukrainians to give them weapons. And see, I'm mad I took my hat off already. It's in another room, but but her emails. But her emails. But her emails. He was a fucking he was a fucking traitor. He displayed that from the minute he went down that fucking escalator. But her emails. But her emails. And can't have a lady. I think it's something with that building now. Like, I don't see people going in and out of that building. Hell no. <laughs> I walk by it and give it the fucking finger. I'm like, fuck you. Oh, yeah. What was that? Uh, uh, what's this, the soccer name? Uh, the soccer guy, Cristiano. I can't remember his last name. He sold, yes, he, he sold his apartment in Trump Tower below cost. Just so he could fucking get rid of it. Sad. But that building is dirty. Mm. 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 Yep. Just, uh, I don't know. Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, it's just like, oh my God, they're awesome. They are. I'm glad they won this week because. Well deserved. Well deserved badass of the week. And I want to issue a correction. I wrongly said Judge Brown Jackson's name before. And I want to correct that. (laughs) It's Jackson if you're nasty. Okay. <laughs> Jackson, Judge Jackson, if you're nasty. Just Jackson, if you're nasty. <laughs> so, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Unapologetically She. I'm Eliane. I'm Shantae. I'm Sarah. I'm Lauren Ashley. I'm Katie. Make sure to stay tuned for next week when we will be discussing our next Shot and Chaser Misinformation War Room our read receipts, and our bitch-ass and badass of the week. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms at the, T-H-E-E, Joyful She. Again, at the, T-H-E-E, Joyful She. We'll see you online.
already so fucking it was like I cannot be unapologetically hung over you know what I'm saying <laughs> um, for our first show um but anyway she once lived in an apartment in the Upper East Side okay and she shared this freaking apartment you could sit on the toilet and wash your hands at the same time that's how close the sink was that's how my no, apartment was oh, that's how my apartment no, was you. in England that's how it was no, in my apartment you. in England. It was the same thing. And then it was like, we didn't even have like a shower head. Okay. So like the, the ceiling was like slanted like this. Right. So you couldn't even stand up all the way in the shower. You had to stand in the window cut out that you had to open. Like you open the windows out this way and there was a cutout. So you had to stand in the little cutout in the shower and there wasn't even a shower head. Like because showers weren't like a thing there it was like you know baths whatever but we had to get like these rubber tubes to plug into each side hot and cold because it didn't come out of the same faucet it was two separate faucets and had to stand in the cutout with a rubber hose over us washing us that way and like the toilet was right by the freaking sink and it was so freaking gross to me it is gross like i'm like listen I like convenience and shit, but I don't want to fucking be able to wash my hands when I'm sitting on the toilet. Unapologetically, she is a Spring Break 83 production in association with the Joyful Warrior Podcast Network.